<laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview successful entrepreneurs on how they grow their businesses and also how they grow personally as well. Today, we have the CEO and founder of Wistia, Chris Savage. Chris, how are we doing today? I'm excellent. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Um, so, yeah, why don't we start off with uh, talking a little bit about your background first? Sure. Um, so I started with you seven years ago. Before that, I was I started when I was 22, I think, um, with my best friend from college. And so uh, we both went to Brown, and while I was there, I focused on filmmaking. And so I I'd done just a ton of film projects. Um, I had ton, shot a bunch of short films myself. I'd helped produce like a feature length documentary that we got to theaters um, and won festivals and stuff like that. And so I was like deeply in the independent film world. Um, when we came up with the idea for the for what the first version of Wistia would be, which is not what Wistia today is. Got it. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, the old version of, of Wistia and why you decided to pivot to the new version and what the new version is exactly? Sure. So, um, <laughs> it's been a lot of things. Uh, when we first started, we based, we saw an opportunity to help filmmakers use video online better. This is in 2006. And um, I had adopted using things like YouTube and at the time VO and Metacafe and all these other companies that were all growing really fast and they were all using open source tools to do the encoding of, to get video to play back online. We saw that and we're like, this is a, a, a monumental shift that's happening in online video and it's the key piece is that you don't have to be technical anymore to get video to play back online. And so I had a bunch of filmmaking friends, I myself was a filmmaker, I wasn't taking advantage of this stuff. No one else really was taking advantage of this stuff. They didn't want their content near pirated stuff, which you know was all pirated content back then. Um, they wanted more control of it. They wanted it to be higher quality. Mm. And so we kind of set off initially making a portfolio website for filmmakers and <laughs> spent nine or 10 months building that, launching it, realizing that we we're not getting traction. And if we needed to make money, which we did to survive, this would not be the way to do that. And along the way, we built a way for filmmakers to privately share content. And the idea was, if you're making movies, you want to share them with your peers, with the producer on your project, with other editors for feedback. And I had done that. We said, let's solve that problem. So we solved that problem. And um, businesses started talking to us saying that they had the same problem and that they needed to privately share video. And so we switched and we threw out the portfolio thing, made this product for businesses to privately share video. And that evolved. Um, we started doing tracking so that people could learn about training and collaboration and stuff like that. Got to about 30 customers. And these customers said, we love this product, but we want to embed videos on our site. And we want to see how people are watching them, which is obviously our whole premise today, but mm -hmm. was not back then. We built that functionality and it took off. Um, and so today, I would describe us, us what Wistia is, is a just a video marketing platform that tries to make it really easy to learn how to make better videos. Got it. Okay. So do you think the key differentiator between, you know, uploading it to YouTube or Vimeo is that you guys offer a lot more insight um, and things like, are there any other key benefits beyond, you know, Wistia versus YouTube and things like that? It's all focus, right? So um, YouTube is great and it's, it's YouTube is, YouTube is a great like content engine. Um, but the, you're giving up some control around your content so that they can serve ads, right? And the way that they, that, that because that's the way they make money, it feeds into everything on the site. So, um, you know, I'm sure you know this, but 
the way that a lot of the rankings are done in search and the way the rankings are done for related videos is how much time does this video encourage people to spend on YouTube watching videos. Yep. So if you have a video that does a really great job selling a product and everyone comes back to your site and they try to buy that product, that will, you don't get the community benefits of mm -hmm. being there. Um, but you, you know, if you have other content that does do well there, then you can get those benefits. Um, and for me, it's just focus, right? Like we're extremely focused on businesses that want traffic to go back to their site. Mm -hmm. They want to convert more of that traffic. They want to get email addresses. They want to build a lasting relationship. Mm -hmm. And they think part of the key there is like building an audience and making better videos. And so the customization features that we have, the analytics that we have, the integrations that we have, like all of the marketing tools that we have are pretty different from everybody else out there. And I, I would say that those are like, the functional differences, I think it's also pretty clear from our mission. If you look at the content that we make, mm -hmm. how we're presenting this stuff, um, we're, we're actually dogfooding it and trying to prove that you can do this. Mm -hmm. Like you can have great content on your site and it will attract more traffic and then you can like convert that traffic and turn it into a business. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, with the, I think it has, I mean, you mentioned control and having focus, right? Um, is there any reason for marketers to also be using Wistia in combination with something like YouTube? Absolutely. Um, I see lots of people who do that really successfully. And the stuff that tends to work best is like having content that you're making that's specifically for each place. Mm -hmm. So on YouTube, it's content where you know the goal is to drive more views of other content and more time watch of other content. And so brand focused things, like educational things that are that you think someone will want to watch more things from you is like a good thing to do and then eventually leading them down the path where like if you want longer versions of this stuff, if you want you know, higher quality versions or different co different mm -hmm. content, come then come back to my site and see that. And then on their site they'll use Wistia or something like us. And the goal there is like make that content really focused on doing the job you want it to do. You know, whether it's getting an email address, getting someone to sign up for your product, getting someone to download something, like and that's where our analytics shine. And that's where the product like really is, you know, I think at, where Wistia is at its best. Mm -hmm. Cool. And you mentioned, um, so earlier you mentioned, you know, nine to 10 months, you know, you guys didn't have much traction. Um, did you guys have investors to keep you afloat or what did you do exactly to uh, make everything work? So yeah, I mean, at that time we had no investors except ourselves. And uh, <laughs> our strategy was just keep our living expenses as low as possible. Um, so my co-founder and I lived in a 10 person house and my girlfriend and I shared like a little tiny room and uh, we did that for four years. Wow. So I, I was spending $300 a month on rent for four years. That was like helped, you know, not need investment for a while. Um, and we, we shared food with the 10 people that we lived with. <laughs> so, um, I was spending like $15 a week on food back then. Um, and that helped us get through like, we thought we'd run out of money in like eight months. Mm -hmm. And then because we thought we'd buy a bunch of other things. And like, we would not buy printer ink. We would just fucking borrow printers from other people. <laughs> just like, couldn't stand to do that. And uh, like our coffee pot broke at one point, like the craft just like shattered. And I was like, there's no way we're buying a coffee pot. That's absolutely ridiculous. So we took like a regular pot, we'd stick it under there, coffee would go everywhere. And I prefer for coffee to go everywhere and clean it up than to like spend 30 bucks at that time to like get a coffee maker. So we lasted two years, um, or 18, 18 to 20 months. And then we raised an angel round. Got it. Wow. So, I mean, the key takeaway, what I'm hearing is, you know, you got to be frugal and you got to be willing to MacGyver things together in the beginning. Yes. You have to be frugal and MacGyver things together. Absolutely. Got it. Okay, cool. And so how do you, I mean, you know, you started the company in, um, in 06. And so how do you think the video landscape has changed since then? 
it has changed dramatically. Uh, <laughs> um, I think it's just become way more of an expectation today that we people rely on video to learn things faster and to actually judge whether or not the information they're getting is real. Um, it used to be a lot easier to put up a website and say like, we're a legitimate company, give us your money. And today I think like, you know, it's been a, a pretty consistent trend that everybody's trying to be, um, what's the word? Just like, people are risk averse, right? Like nobody wants to give their information to the wrong place, like have their shit get hacked. Like they want to know that they, they don't want to waste their time by trying the wrong product. Um, and I think video, it's like a lot harder to hide your blemishes in video. Mm -hmm. And whether you're demoing a product that doesn't work or like the person who's on camera doesn't necessarily genuine. Um, and so it just is completely gone from like, when we started, we tell people what we're doing, they're like, that makes no sense, there'll never be a market there. Mm -hmm. Now everybody's like, oh my God, we need to use video. And it should be an expectation. So that's like a phenomenal change. The other big change has just been in the quality of the work that someone can make themselves. Like I see so much amazing stuff every day that like one person made. And when I started, I was on like, uh, you know, the last big project I did before Wistia was this feature length film. And there was like three or four of us in the office every day editing and, um, you know, like trying to like negotiate all this crap and send files all over the place. It was like so hard and it took so much time. I mean, I was literally transcribing videos myself by hand, like so that we could have like the scripts of these like interviews we did so we could edit them. And like, you can literally do that automatically. now. And there's just so many things that have just been com completely automated, automated away in the video world in the last five years. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, just to give the audience some stats here, I mean, YouTube gets, you know, three, I think it's 3 billion hours viewed a month or something like that. And they have probably yeah. close to a billion users now. So, I mean, it, it's growing and growing and, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of TV advertisers are moving their ad budgets there, so um, definitely somewhere where you should, where you should get into. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of acquiring the first you know, 100 users, are there any key takeaways you can kind of uh, give to the audience? Yeah, I would say you know, do things that don't scale. Um, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that seems insane that you do at the beginning. Um, you know, we were almost out of money and, uh, well, we were almost out of money the whole time, but there's, <laughs> I remember there's one particular customer that we, um, heard that they actually want to have a meeting, but they were in California and we were in Boston and we spent half the money we had in the bank to like fly out and meet with them. Wow. And we actually ended up walking away from the deal because it was going to like set us in the wrong direction. But like, just because we were talking to this huge brand name company, all these other companies, thought like, oh my God, you talked to the head of production for this giant media company, like you must be somewhat legitimate. And that like helped us like, you know, kind of get the crank turning to prove that people should trust us. Because uh, I think the first hundred users are about trust. It's all, I mean, it's always about trust, but those guys like want to use something really early. They want to get an advantage by being an early adopter. They want to use something really sweet. They want to be known for that. Um, maybe they understand their problem in a better way than anybody else has ever understood their problem. And your product probably meets like 60% of what they need. And it's just like, just hustling every time to get from that 60% to that 100%. So my advice is like, crank it out. I, you know, I don't know any other way. Yeah, no, and I, I've said that, I, I think I've, I've kind of, you know, killed that term or <laughs> overdone it a few times, but you know, Paul Graham, do things that don't scale. I've said it on so many interviews here. Um, so yeah, I mean, um, actually one of the things that you did, and I'm not, 
this kind of scales, I suppose, is um, you talked about uh, doing, you know, doing T-shirts or giving away a ton of T-shirts. Um, how did you guys use that to your advantage, and what was the return? Yeah, um, so for, we started making T-shirts pretty early on, like for ourselves, and we always wanted to make T-shirts that we actually wanted to wear. Like I've gotten so many T-shirts from other companies that. Um, were like Hanes beefy tees and they were just like uncomfortable and you'd wear them and you'd look kind of like a Jamoke and uh, that's a 1920s term obviously. Uh, and um, you just, I would never wear the shirt around except because I just believed so much in the company. And we started looking into like really nice American apparel shirts like pretty early on and we made a small run of them and um, gave them out to our friends and they actually wore them. And they would tell us like this is the most comfy shirt I've ever had. And especially when you're in your, I feel like it's like you're in your early 20s, you don't have much money, you come out of college trying to figure out what to do, you're not going to go spend like $18 on a t-shirt. Mm -hmm. And so we're giving people their nicest shirts and they're like, I always see a shirt as my nicest shirt. And <laughs> that started to like, you know, wait a second, you know, I, I used to always think of t-shirts as something like, I want people to see the brand and it's, and it's advertising space on someone's chest. Mm -hmm. But instead if you think about it like, no, I want to build a super strong connection with each individual that gets one of these shirts. So that when they open their drawer, they look in and they think, Where's, what shirt should I wear? Well, my Wistia one is the most comfortable one that I have. I feel really good about Wistia right now, and I'm going to put that shirt on. And what we discovered is that that was what was happening, is like people were getting the shirts, they were wearing them a lot. And their friends would be like, what is Wistia? I have no idea what this is. You wear this shirt five times a month, and they just say, it's the most comfortable shirt I own. And so, the ROI, like, I don't know what the dollar amount is, but it's huge. And um, the cost of the shirts compared to like the amount of money that our customers pay is very low. So it's basically like every time customers reach out to us, or actually anyone in the community for a shirt, we try to hook people up. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we do that to a limit because we want the shirts to be really nice. Nice. No, I, I can attest to the American Apparel. Uh, that, that's, those are the ones we get as well. Um, probably the best shirt I have, um, but I do want a Wistia one as well. Um, I know a guy, so we can get you hooked up. Cool, perfect. Um, in terms of, um, you know, I think in one of your interviews, um, you talked about casting a wide net instead of trying to target your initial customers. Can you kind of go into that? Yeah, I mean, so um, early on, I got a lot of advice that you should look for like targeted verticals. So people, would, we were trying to pitch actually in our angel round. People would say. Well, like, which verticals use video? I mean, come on. I'd be like, uh, 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 life sciences, uh, high tech? Like, I'm just making stuff up, right? And um, we would try to call into those verticals, and they might be verticals where there was a lot of video or whatever you're trying to sell, but um, people would be like, yeah, this sounds so interesting. Well, you should talk to this other guy, and then you finally get through to somebody and be like, we don't have any video. Like, this doesn't, this doesn't make no sense. And um, we started to realize that, like, we had to the only way to make this like work would be if it was like long-term, if it was a frictionless product that someone could sign up for themselves, that they could understand themselves, that worked for like a core use case and then a lot of like edge cases. And so we just started to go wider and we started to um, focus more on marketing generally than like any one particular vertical. And what happened is that brought a lot more like junk in, like people, all these people, started saying like, uh, you know, like they having just really wacky ideas basically that were completely out of line with what the product was going to be. But so we got way more like wacky out of line ideas, mm -hmm. but we found more that were like the right thing. And so you just keep like 
get that slew of 100 things, find like the 12 that are like really good and mm. dig it. And now what's happened is over time, the percentage of, the, of stuff that comes in that's good is extremely high because we've been able to get more and more focused and more and more targeted mm -hmm. about like what Wistia is for. Like I used to just say marketing, and I'll call it a platform for marketing, but it's really like trying to get people to your site, trying to get them to take an action. And there's a lot of businesses where they don't care about that. Mm -hmm. Like I used to try to sell those people. Um, like the easiest one to think about is like an Old Spice, right? Like I used to try to sell B2C companies like that on using mm -hmm. Wistia, but the thing is they're not trying to get someone to buy deodorant on their site. Yeah, we're trying to get someone to buy deodorant when they're walking through Rite Aid or CVS, and yeah, they might actually make a decision based off of like how fun they they felt, like how much like joy they felt after the last video they saw, mm -hmm. which is really really different than some like B two B, you know, sales insights product, mm -hmm. which never ever will benefit from that, but will benefit from getting like more traffic. So it's just a, it's a different thing. Got it. So. Cast a wide. I think. I think your thing was, you know, you cast a wide net first, and then you you started to optimize up or filter out, you know, the, the clients that really worked for you, um, and that's what worked for you guys. Cool. Yeah. Um, backing up a little bit, you talked about, you know, cash in the bank. So, I mean, after you guys, you know, started to do well and things like that, um, you know, I always, you know, think about cash buffers and how different entrepreneurs, uh, you know, how big they keep their cash buffer. So, um, in terms of cash buffer, can you talk a little bit, of, uh, you know, in terms of like your strategy for that? Yeah. Uh, um... That's a good question. I think in the early days, um, we probably didn't think enough about it and um, made some mistakes where we almost ran out of money. Mm. Uh, but um, there was a point where, you know, I think this is, it's really tempting to like grow your team mm -hmm. and to like have the cash, like to have a small amount of cash in the bank but have like a big team. It's like really exciting. It's like, oh my God. Because everyone says to each other, like, you know, you asked me before this, like, can I talk about revenue? I was like, I can't talk about revenue. And most people can't talk about revenue. What they can talk about is team. They're like, well, how big is your team? It's like, my team's eight people. And so I was like, mine's 15, mine's 25, mine's 100. And you're like, wow, I guess that company's doing like really well. Uh, and, good um, it feels like that, but I think that's not the truth. And we almost fell into that trap. Um, and it started to, I started to tell people when they would ask and, and when investors would ask and stuff, I'd say, look, like if we can't figure out how to get to like a cash flow positive place with like seven people, this won't work with 700. Mm -hmm. This won't work with like way, way, way more. Like we have to, it has to work right now. Like we have to be able to support these people. Like this is not a business where you get to like extreme scale first. Mm -hmm. And obviously some businesses are like that, but for us, like that was not the case. And so um, when I think about cash buffer now, like it's not a problem for us because we have let the, like, the revenue growth and the customer growth get in front of like, the people growth. Mm -hmm. um, so there's like a separator there. And you know, now, I mean, if, um, I think when we look at it today, it's like look at like, how much revenue is coming in, um, how many months of expenses of cash we want to keep in the bank basically, and how predictable is the revenue. Mm -hmm. And so, I think for your business, for anybody's business, it's just looking at like how predictable is that stuff that's coming in. If it's extremely predictable, you need much less cash. If it's like wildly unpredictable, you need a lot more cash. I don't know. That's it's. I think it's pretty simple for me these days. But got it. And how big is your team right now? Uh, we're twenty-four people. Got it. Okay. Cool. Yeah. No, I thought I had to ask that question um, along the way. Um, cool. So, I mean, in terms of um, you talk a little bit about. Um, you know, video distribution in one of your uh, previous posts that I read somewhere. Um, so what are some video distribution tactics you're able to share? 
just in terms of getting more people to see your content. Yeah. I think the biggest one is like, don't undervalue your uh, existing audience. We used to try to make content that was designed for people we weren't talking to yet. Mm -hmm. And so we'd be like, all right, uh, we've never dealt with these people, but like, what, what content do they want? We're like, oh, let's like, come up with ideas. Everyone comes up with ideas. And then like, you throw it out there and it's like by itself. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, there's no like, at the time that seemed like that made sense. Like this is for some audience we weren't talking to. Mm -hmm. But um, what I've learned is that like throwing out these things that are like not that connected, you don't get the benefits of actually having one existing audience. Mm -hmm. And so instead, if you look at like, who are the people who are already coming back and what, how can you make them more excited? Like how can you make your core base, the, the 20% or 10% of people who watch your videos who are the most excited, how can you make them so enamored that they cannot stop themselves from telling other people? And then the way that you connect with them, I think is like, through other channels, through channels that you can interact with them, um, not just with video. So, like, relying on social channels, I think, is huge. Like, obviously, using Twitter, using Facebook. But both of those platforms, and Facebook in particular, have really dramatically changed who you can communicate with. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first started doing Facebook marketing, if you sent something out to any every single person who liked your page could see it. Mm -hmm. And now, it's people who have interacted with your page X number of times, um, and like recently, it's not all people who have liked it. You can pay more to get in front of all people who have liked it, like yada, 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 but it's a far less consistent thing. Um, we found email to be like a very consistent thing long term. Mm -hmm. So um, as long as you're sending out high quality stuff, the, your email list, I think, is probably one of the most valuable assets you can grow mm -hmm. because that catches people in a, a certain type of mode, right? Like, at least when I go to my inbox, like I'm taking actions, like I'm re responding to people, I'm forwarding things on, I'm archiving things. Good point. If I see a piece of content that's really useful, I'll watch it or I'll say to myself, like, I should save this for later. Mm -hmm. And it's a very clear thing versus like, I feel like I talk to people, I'm like, where do you use Twitter? They're like, oh, when I'm in the bathroom. You know, it's just like, it's like a way to just like, like worry the time away basically. Yeah. Uh, and like that, there are obviously benefits there too, but uh, I would say play to the existing audience because you can get to know them better, and if you really do make great content, they are going to be the people who tell everybody else. Okay, cool. So when you when you say play to your audience, I mean, do you have a percentage where you know you're you know let's say eighty to ninety percent is playing to your audience, and then like a ten to twenty percent you're taking risk on new new types of content? Yeah, I think for us it's probably the shift has changed over time depending what on what the issues are, like what we're tackling. Mm. Um, today, I would say it is probably. 80% playing to the audience and 20% new stuff. Yeah. Um, but we'll kind of go through modes where we're like, oh, this is a new kind of thing we're not talking about. It's close to our audience, but if we're gonna do it, we're gonna do like three or four or 10 things here mm -hmm. so that we have a shot at like building up like some rapport and some audience with this, uh, with that group. Smart. And you know Matt Mullenweg from uh, WordPress said this, right? He said, you know, if if you're gonna write or you know if you're gonna create, you're essentially supposed to create for yourself or create for a very specific segment. And I think you know what you do um, exactly aligns with that. So, and I, I'm I'm in a, a complete agreement on that. So, um, you talked about email marketing. We're talking about distribution a little bit. So, um, you know, this this segues into the, the next question, I guess. Um, what's been the most ex effective uh, user acquisition strategy for Wistia? That's a good question. Uh, it's depended on the stage we're at. Um, right now. Today, what's yep. been like the most of us effective thing today? Mm -hmm. 
uh, making great content. I love it. Yeah. Cool. And uh, go ahead. Yeah. No. I, I like what happens today is if we make content and it resonates with our audience, it just spikes everything. Like it brings way more people back. There's way more traffic. There's way more signups. There's more sales. There's more. There's more everything. Mm -hmm. um, and it shows up in interesting ways, I think. Like, it doesn't show up as just like page views to a piece of content. Mm -hmm. It literally is a reminder to others. Like, people see it and they're like, oh, Wistia, mm, I have a positive feeling. And then they, I swear, I don't have any evidence to prove this, but like, what I think is happening is that that's the moment that someone else tells other people, like, I have a meeting to tell you about Wistia, the product. Like, you should check it out, check it out, check it out, check it out. And it just, it raises the boats. So, yeah, totally. And I, I can kind of um, help. Um you know, assist that comment right there because I'm in agreement. Um, I talked to Ryan Carson from Treehouse last week and, you know, he mentioned that it was tough to measure the effectiveness of uh, how effective YouTube was for them, you know, video marketing, right? Um, until they started building more analytics tools in-house and then they found that the, 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 uh, the effect of YouTube was actually much bigger than the, you know, than the data was showing them. So um, just letting you guys know, you know, content is, content is huge. Um, how about, um, you know, if you could go back and change one thing, what would it be? If I could go back and change one thing, what would it be? Man, there's a lot of stuff I would try to fix. Uh, I think we, after we raised our first round, so up until that point, there have been two of us. We raised the round, two more guys joined us, and um, we raised it like because we had a bunch of enterprise interest. So we had these big companies that were trusting us. Uh. Our first six customers, like five of them were huge. And they were trusting like two guys in a bedroom. So like that's literally what where we were. And I couldn't believe that this was happening. And they're paying us up front. It was like awesome. Um, but we always thought that what we were going to do was like try to make something that uh, would be a frictionless sale. That all the pricing would be online. It would be easy to see. It'd be easier, easy to sign up. And they kind of pulled us in this other direction for like seven months, where we thought that we were going to be doing enterprise selling. And so we thought we should be doing cold calling. We tried, and we were doing cold calling just to try to get anybody, but like uh -huh. we kind of moved in this direction and didn't trust our guts. And yet at that moment, we'd been going for like 20 months. And you know, I felt like a business owner because people were paying us and we'd had a product, we had a website and stuff. And I think it's like really, I would have just not, I would have trusted my gut more. And cause I think one of the things that's easy to forget, um, even like this program, like. I hope it's useful, like these answers are useful to somebody, but you should not take what I say as like the playbook. Like there's no fucking playbook. Like yeah. you have your own business and you'll make, you'll figure out exactly what you think are the right things to do. And hopefully you glean a couple things that are useful that are like, oh, I hadn't thought about it this way or I could do that that way or whatever. But that's not how we were treating it. We were kind of immature. So everybody's like enterprise sales, like build this thing, blah, blah, blah. Like, and um, we just got distracted and didn't trust ourselves. And it was like seven months later, it was like, no, this is our business. And like, we are the people who would make the final decisions on this stuff. And like, people will give us advice and our jobs is to try to manage that advice. It's to try to manage like, what advice seems like it feels right and what advice doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think today, I'm much more willing to trust my gut than I was back then, mm -hmm. just because I realized like this, like this is my company, you know? Um, and that can be a hard thing to wrap your head around when you're just getting started. So I probably would have tried, I wish I had more conviction back then, um, I think we're lucky we learned a lot and it worked out great, but yeah. Yeah, and I think that that actually brings up a really interesting point because, I mean, 
you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, I see a lot of entrepreneurs, they're usually like stable. They're really like, un, you know, they're trying, they're really unwavering, you know, in terms of, you know, the vision. But I mean, you, and then I look at like Jeff Bezos, there's other, uh, you know, entrepreneurs too. Uh, they're willing to change direction quickly. I mean, what's your take on that? What's your philosophy on that? Just on changing direction? Yeah. I mean, you're like you're, one second you're doing this and you're pivoting to something else and you're like enterprise sale. You're like, no, that's not right. You're like, you're, you're able to make decisions quickly. I think that the biggest thing is like having conviction about your vision. Like, um, it's funny, one of the growing pains that we've had uh, is that like, we add more people and then suddenly this stuff that everybody implicitly knew before, nobody knows. And it's like this nonverbal communication of like, you're sitting next to somebody at the same desk, like doing work, like you can hear the calls I, I'm doing, I can hear the calls you're doing, we both know all these things. Mm -hmm. But suddenly now, there's people all across office and all this stuff. And one of those things for us has just been like, I think like I and, and my co-founder Brennan have always looked at what Wistia is doing is like trying to help businesses make better videos and that like lots of businesses are going to want to do that. And that's been like a fundamental assumption since the very, very beginning that has never changed. It's like never once has that thing changed. And it, the key insight at the beginning was like the there's a major technology shift and it's going gonna, it's gonna to let this happen. And so a lot of these decisions around like, what should the price be, like, which by the way, I mean, we've changed our price 40 times since the beginning. Um, what should be in the product? How, like, how should that onboarding process work? Like, what should the landing page be? What should the high level messaging be? Like, should we sell up here? Should we go down there? Like, should we do like really proactive customer happiness? Should we like take the phone on the site? Like all this stuff, I think it just like comes down to like, does this fit into the vision? Does this fit into the vision of what we want to do? And I find it, a lot easier to change and shift if I believe that it does. I also find it a lot easier to change and shift if I feel like we are going to get some data and even if we fail massively, the data will be useful. Mm -hmm. And, um, but like those are things that are in our culture, but they're not super clear to somebody new on the first day. Mm -hmm. So it's like our job to make that more clear and to do that so that everybody feels that way when they're here. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So the vision, I, I mean, I agree with that. The vision is super important and it's something you need to establish day one. There's no like do it later type thing. Um, for I that. Your, yeah. I think your vision can be like opened up. Like you can see something and you're like, whoa, like I, that never occurred to me that that would happen. And like it, it should be, it can change and modify, but like mm. it, I think the highest, highest, highest level thing, that's a hard thing to change. And I think that's also a hard thing to pivot to because like you're going out of your area of expertise and the thing that your brain was like crunching on for however long you've been doing this, the back of your head and you're going to something else. And that, I think that's tough. Yep. Totally agree. I mean, got to set the high level vision first. Um, if not, you know, you're going to be shooting all of, or shooting from the hip, so to speak. Um, so wrapping it up here, um, two more questions from my end. Um, what is a must read book for entrepreneurs? Good question. Um, let's see. I've got a bunch. Um, I mean, the books I'm reading right now. Uh, there's a great book called The Advantage by Patrick Lan Lanconi, I think is his name. That's basically talking about like organizational structures and like how to create clarity amongst your team. Mm -hmm. um, and it's surprisingly interesting. Um, I'm reading a book called Managing Humans right now by Michael Lopp, who's the Rands and Repose guy. It's amazing. It's so good. As anybody like on any team, I think they'd find it extremely interesting about like how people interact with each other. Um, in terms of like higher level business books, um, 
I don't know. Like, there's the innovator's dilemma. I think it's huge. Um, I think I think there's a lot of must reads. I guess. Nice. No, that's that's three that are really good. Two that I haven't heard of. Um, and I Rans and Repose. I didn't even actually know that guy wrote a book. So that's actually I'm gonna buy that right after this. Um, so um, in terms of productivity hack, what's the t what's the top productivity hack you can share with the audience? Um, I would say my newest one is being extremely proactive about scheduling my time. So, uh, like my schedule, for example, is Monday is all internal meetings. Mm -hmm. Tuesday morning is internal meetings. Tuesday afternoon, I block off for my own time so that like to get creative work done to like be able to jump in and have like spur the moment stuff. Wednesday is all external stuff. Hello, why, why is this Wednesday? <laughs> Thursday is the same as Tuesday, and then Friday is open. And just having like some very serious structure in my schedule has made it way much, just much easier to manage. Because mm -hmm. if someone says to me like, "Hey, can we have a call?" I'm like, "Hey, how does Wednesday look?" It's mm -hmm. my first response. Then I just like fit stuff in. Um, and so yeah, I think that's that's the my most recent one that is making a big impact. Got it. Cool. So yeah, Chris, you know, thanks so much for doing this. I mean, there are more than enough gold nuggets in here for the audience to take away. Um, yeah, thanks for doing this and uh, hope we talk again soon. Yeah, man. Take it easy. See ya. See ya.